Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that. Biblical. Biblical. Theology. Theology. Study. The person of God. Attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest story ever told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Biblical theology. That is what we try and do here at Theology Matters. So glad you guys joined us again today for another episode. You know, my wife was was looking through the uh, past account and we realized, you know, we've been doing this show for three years. 
kind of hard to believe that uh, we've been doing it that long, but three years and uh, well over 100 episodes, and uh, it's just been a real blessing for us to be able to do this show and to be able to talk to really some of the brightest minds in the Christian faith. We've done shows with guys like Paul Copan, Dr. Norm Geisler, Shandon Guthrie, and probably the biggest draw that we do is a lot of the debates. Um, we have done shows, uh, debates on Roman Catholicism, atheism, Mormonism, yeah, annihilationism, whether or not uh, the doctrine of hell is uh, eternal conscious torment or whether one is annihilated. So we really tried to hit a hit a broad, uh, broad spectrum. So anyway, thank you everybody for listening you know, week after week. Uh, it's uh, it's a labor of love. We we don't make any money off of it. We don't get paid from it or anything like that. Uh, but it is a is a labor of love for us. So thank you guys for listening and, and supporting us. Today we are going to be looking at the thought and apologetic method of Francis Schaeffer. That's kind of embarrassing, but I really do not know anything about Francis Schaeffer. He's not somebody that I've really studied, and so we're bringing a guy on that is very well-known, kind of in the Francis Schaeffer movement there, kind of studying uh, his thought and his works, etc. So we're looking forward to that show. Before we get to that, though, I just wanted to make a quick announcement. In fact, maybe maybe my wife would like to make the announcement. Go ahead, Melissa. Okay. Thanks, Devin. so we um, have been working with uh, Russia Christie, Student Apologetics Alliance, um, as chapter directors at Winthrop University um, for the past um, pro- almost two years now. And we have been um, also working as, w- through Russia Christie as community apologists, doing various works in the community, um, equipping people from um, the prisons to, to churches to community events. Um, on the need for apologetics and um, just trying to help people shore up their faith and engaging skeptics and um, cultists and unbelievers. And um, we um, really felt that the Lord really wanted us to devote our lives to this and we can put more time into our radio show by um, and into the other ministry activities that we're doing by going full-time with our show Christie as supported missionaries. So we have taken that uh, leap of faith, and we are uh, currently um, in the process of um, raising uh, monthly financial supporters support through those who um, really um, feel called to um, help us and to invest in us and to our ministry and into our lives uh, through monthly support. So that is the stage that we are at right now, and I'll put some information on the um, on our uh, theology matters Facebook page. Just if you would like to um, support us, um, you can even email us at theologymatters at yahoo.com if you would like to just come alongside us as prayer supporters. If you'd like to get, you know, monthly newsletters about what's going on, you know, no no pressure to give, but, you know, just to pray for us during this journey and the transition of our family because it is a definitely a step of faith um, to go into full-time ministry. So, um, but with that being said, we really hope that we can even build on the show more and put more um, just improve the show and, and 
a number of ways as well as we're able to devote more time um, to focusing on ministry. So that was the big announcement. All right. Thank you, honey. We plan to do some more shows together. Uh, We used to do that all the time in the past, and then uh, our little monkey came, and so (laughs) we've not been able to do uh, the shows together like we like because, you know, someone's got to be watching the watching the little ones. So but we're working on that. So thank you, everybody, for hanging in there with us. For the first part of the section, I am going to bring my good friend Greg Walker back on the show. So last week, those who were uh, listening, you might have noticed we had uh, quite a bit of technical issues, at least for the first probably 40 minutes. And uh, poor Greg, you know, just kind of, threw him out there in the pool and hope he could swim, and he did a good job. But uh, I know some people would probably uh, quit listening after a few minutes just because there was a lot of dead air and uh, just problems. So I wanted to bring him back on the show again for the first uh, 20 minutes or so and just talk a little bit about the Truth Festival that is uh, coming up. So, Greg, are you there, my friend? Yes, thanks for bringing me back. (laughs) Man, I, I appreciate you coming back. <laughs> yeah. So, tell us about you, yourself, Greg. Uh, a little bit about how you came to know the Lord. Uh, we're just going to kind of basically repeat this interview <laughs> for those people yeah, who, uh, well, who might have missed. I grew up in uh, southern Illinois and a um, broken family and eventually joined the military and became an Army Ranger and... Um, I was in special operations serving in Iraq and Afghanistan and lost a lot of friends, over over a dozen. Ended up coming home and uh, pretty much just really struggling with post-traumatic stress and ended up drinking a lot, partying a lot, womanizing a lot. I even uh, went as far as moving to Spain and just lived a really crazy lifestyle trying to really just self-medicate and... Um, led a really self-centered, uh, self-medicating life. And I ended up uh, seeing a couple of guys in a coffee shop reading a Bible, and I walked up to him and punched the table with both my fists and looked right at him, and I said I wanted to talk to him. And uh, one of them was a pastor, and actually he ran out the door. <laughs> and uh, the guy... Greg, the guy you know, that, Greg, let, me, let me say this, too. Greg is kind of an intimidating uh, figure, folks, so... If he came and uh, pounded this table, you would probably run out. You, you're like a, a former SEAL or something, right? Or Army Ranger. Army Ranger, yeah. He, I don't think yeah. he ran out so much for fear. I think he knew that uh, the guy that was he was sitting next to was better, best qualified because the guy that was uh, sitting there was a former Army Ranger. And uh, wow. so the Lord brought me to a fellow Army Ranger, and I never run into those guys. Hardly ever. And I uh, sat down with him and asked questions, and he gave me his card. And he, uh, he happened to be a, a student at Gordon-Conwell, and he said, give me a call anytime, and I will come to you. And uh, I ran into a pretty crazy demonic experience, and I ended up running out of my condo one one day, and uh, I ran behind a shopping center and basically begged God to help me, and I told him I wanted him and to save me. And then I called... This, this gentleman and he came rushing over with uh, with grape juice and bread and we went over the gospel again and I I, I officially turned and gave my life to the Lord and he uh, I took communion with him 
remembered what the Lord had done for us at that moment, worshipped him, and he actually said a prayer over my house, and that was that. And uh, what's really fascinating is I immediately had a lot of questions, and um, these guys ended up pulling me into their Bible study, and they would have to get together sometimes before we would meet just to try to handle my questions. And uh, over time, they, they told me I needed needed to go to Bible college, and so I ended up at SCS, and now I'm still at SCS, been trying to finish up an MDiv and apologetics, and it's just huge blessing, absolute amazing that, that, that God would allow me to go to a school like SCS and, and learn the Bible and learn how to defend the faith, and it's just I'm so grateful, eternally grateful. That's right. You meet a lot of good friends along the way and brothers and sisters in Christ that forever change your life. And uh, we're definitely, definitely blessed to know you, Greg. Absolutely. Uh, oh, I feel the same way. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to play this small clip uh, for you. Um, it's your promo about the Truth Festival, which kind of will give us a little insight about that. So I will go ahead and play this clip now, and then we will come back and talk about the the I'm Greg Walker of Global Cross Ministries, and I'm the current student government president of Southern Evangelical Seminary. We're united with the seminary and also with Ratio Christi to host a massive free festival grassroots event. It's called the Truth Festival. This is basically a chance for Christians from across different denominations seminaries, missions organizations to get together and celebrate truth, life, and love. To celebrate our life in Jesus Christ. Um, This festival is going to include fun activities for all ages. We'll have children's art activities. We'll have clown ministries. We'll have blow-up castles. We'll have a big blow-up screen for God's Not Dead in the evening. And We're bringing in different missions organizations from all over the world to speak about what Jesus, what God is doing today, right now. They're going to be speaking about all this amazing work. And we're going to have we're also going to have representatives come in and talk about modern day persecution. Now along with the speakers, we're going to have placed tents all over the park. And these tents are going to be topical. And so if someone has a typical question or objection that's directed towards the Christian faith, we will have trained seminary students at those tents ready to gently and respectfully answer questions and objections. And so, Stowe Park, Belmont, North Carolina, May 30th, 2015. Be there. It's from 11 in the morning until 10.30 at night. It is going to be exciting. You can visit us on truthfestival.org. Greg, my brother, you have a face for radio like me. great spot, man. I'm so excited about this Truth Festival that is going to come and happen uh, this Saturday. Me and me and Greg uh, at one time did a little evangelism. It was actually at the same park. Um, it was not last year, but the year before. It was it was, it was crazy. It was right around Halloween uh, and it was um, the Pagan Festival is what they actually call it. And it was... Uh, a lot of people there, especially towards probably the mid to the end of the day. I mean, there are hundreds of people there. And uh, basically it's people that um, are involved in the occult and in witchcraft and uh, Satanism, etc. And 
they had little booths and everything set up and you'd walk through and you could talk to the people and me and Greg, uh, my wife, and I think some others went and uh, basically just did evangelism that day and it was a, it was a really good time. Um, Greg, talk to us for, for a minute about some of the things you remember about that day and that event and um, is that kind of what influenced the, the Truth Festival? Yeah, the the idea of the Truth Festival was birthed from the Pagan Pride Festival. I just remember hanging out with you guys and doing some some good, some evangelism and just engaging with people and asking them what they believe and why. And I started noticing that there was a lot of different Christians from other um, denominations coming. And I think even at one point there there may have been, especially earlier on in the day, I think there were more Christians there than there were were pagans. And then later on in the evenings, I think that this is when the pag- pagans kind of just filled it but uh, I, I just much later on I was reflecting on that, that festival and I was thinking why don't, why don't Christians do that and, and I don't mean just a festival these guys were they were teaching witchcraft and so they were equipping each other in their own occult practices they were engaging in dialogue with us they were having food vendors they were selling their books they were trying to get materials in people's hands for them to leave with. And I was like, you know, we we need to do this. We, you know, it's it's we have a lot of Christian public events where we get together and it's warm and it's fuzzy and we have we actually have some good worship, which is ultimately for uh, the glory of God. But you know, are we really going out and are we engaging? Are we are we? Uh, you know, I think a, a big part of spiritual warfare is a a battle of ideas and so are we are we are we grappling with these bad ideas and this this culture that's just inundated with with ideas and everything's so readily accessible and so right i thought you know let's let's bring christians from different denominations together not to talk and argue over politics or minor theological differences or uh, the doctrine of election or uh, the traditions of particular denominations or anything like that. Let's let's no, take all the fun away. Take, yeah. take it all the fun away, man. <laughs> <laughs> I I would like to see Christians come together in unity, especially in a time where our nation's very divided, and um, there's a lot of hot topics being thrown around the churches. It'd be nice. I think now would be a good time for Christians to stand for core Christian essential doctrines to worship Jesus Christ, to celebrate their life in Christ right now, and also to be equipped that we, that we could actually listen to experienced missionaries who are currently in the trenches all over the world, some of which are experiencing persecution. And they're, they're in countries where they can't have public festivals, where if they had public Christian mm-hmm. festivals, they would actually get killed. And so shame on us if we're not doing this. Where, you know, our our nation is distancing from Christian principles and values, and and there may come a time when we can't do this, but we can do it right now. And so why not come together, offer questions, or offer answers to questions and objections, give the gospel, listen to some good talks, worship Jesus, and then also provide people with materials to go home and, and further read and equip themselves. Books like I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by... Uh, Frank Turek and Norman Geisler and Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. We're giving out tons of books. And um, so <clears throat> and that's, that's kind you know, of that's, idea. Yeah, let me, let, me, let me say this, too. You know, 
there oftentimes they will have certain you know functions for uh Christians during the summer and uh a lot of times you know you'll go there and there's they've got you know uh, certain Christian bands or whatever uh playing in certain events etc um but rarely do they deal with very much substantial issues dealing with how to defend the faith and i think that is what's really the difference between the the truth festival and so many other, um, you know, Christian events and, and that that happened during the summer. This really is a focus on, on the life of the mind and why we need to defend the Christian faith. And this is an opportunity where people can come and ask questions, you know, open and, and, uh, and honest questions uh, and get some of these answers to the questions. So it's, it's really a great opportunity for evangelism. Uh, it is, oh, yeah. you know, it's... Yeah, go ahead. Talk about that for a second. Oh, yeah, it's going to be a great opportunity for evangelism because you can have not you can you can have non-believers come or Christians that think they're saved but aren't that may come and they'll hear really powerful talks by guys like you know, Voice of the Martyrs is coming. Elam is bringing a pastor from Iran that's experienced crazy persecution. We're not even given his full name because of the the sensitivity around that. And so they'll get to hear about how the kingdom is currently and forcefully advancing. They'll get to hear about what today's persecution looks like. And I would think that, Christian or not, that, wow, the Holy Spirit can really convict people and move in people with that. And, uh, you know, then you then you then someone wanders off to get a chili dog or a, food, a funnel cake, and they hear some really interesting conversations at the Christianity and culture tent where – 10 SES students are, are occupying a, a tent to uh, answer questions and objections and just kind of start dialogue. I mean, wow. I mean, that's right. Well, so we, we, we talk, you know, we're talking earlier about the Army Rangers. Uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary is the Army Rangers of, of seminary students, I think, of, the, of, of theology. I mean, this, where, where me and Greg go to school, uh, it is. Uh, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, it's it's one of the few schools that the real focus is really dealing with philosophy and apologetics and defending the faith. And a lot of seminaries you can go to, and and you might get a course or two uh, on apologetics, but very rarely can you actually get a whole uh, master's degree in apologetics. Uh, I'm finishing my uh, bachelor's degree now, and just in that bachelor's degree, there's more philosophy and apologetics than most all of the seminaries offer for the full-time, you know, master's level. So uh, I just said that to say the, the the people out there that are running the Truth Festival, it's very top quality. And, you know, you, got, you, won't, have, you won't be embarrassed bringing your friends uh, or inviting your friends or family to, to come to the event. It's, 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 it's not going to be, you know, cheesy. It's not going to be something to where, well, I, I can't bring my, my atheist friend because he's going to ask questions that, you know, we may not understand. So just keep that in mind, folks. Greg, let me let me uh, kind of ask just a, a couple of the questions that sometimes come up and w- help walk us through some of these objections. So, uh, you Richard want to respond uh, with what you just said real quick? Absolutely. Go right ahead. Because this is, this is really important. When I was in, uh, when I was in Afghanistan, <laughs> I was – in a compound within a military compound. So I was in an army base 
and this was late 2001, uh, around December of 2001. So just a few months after 9-11, I was in Bagram, Afghanistan, and we created this tentative army base. But within the base, we had special operations, uh, like another base, you know, kind of protected our uh, – we protect ourselves even from the conventional army. And within our compound, we had SEAL Team 6, Delta Force, Rangers, uh, Special Forces, A-teams, uh we had Air Force TACPs. We had the 160th Special Operations Pilots. I mean, it was just, I mean, the best of the best was all the, were all together. And what was interesting is we, we did operations together. Whenever there was a quick reaction force spin up, we needed to go chase a high-value target. We didn't just send the Rangers. We, on, on one helicopter, you might see two SEALs, four Delta Force guys, six Rangers. And, and we, we, we took the best and we, we made teams and worked together. And that's what I see is starting to really, with Christian uh, missions organizations that are out in the field in dangerous areas. So I remember reading books about Vietnam where those groups, the SEALs and the Rangers, Delta Force, they competed against each other and they didn't like each other. And I think when we're in a culture like America where we're, we're pushed, we receive hostility, we're forced to work together because we're getting squeezed. And I think that it can be a good thing. I think that... Uh, we're going to see churches and organizations and seminaries in this country actually moving together and and gaining what you see in third world countries that you know you go to Honduras you see they're rich in relationships but they're poor with material things and I think yeah. that we're going to and, move you know, that... toward more of a rich relationship and and so I say all this to say that at the Truth Festival we got Ratio Christi Southern Evangelical Seminary. SIM, Voice of the Martyrs, all these guys coming together for one cause in unity to give God glory, proclaim the truth, equip and edify each other, and worship. I mean, it's just, I, I love it. I, and it's in the public arena. I would say 90% of the people that are coming to this event would never go to a national apologetics conference at a seminary or possibly even an event at a church. This is a, this is, and this is a grassroots movement. You can't really pin it on anyone necessarily. This is all local organizations, churches, seminaries just doing this together and all volunteering. And so that's what we want. We want these movements. Yeah, it's it's going to be it's going to be a really exciting event, folks. And we're we're going to take some videos and uh, some pictures. And we'll get them up on our Facebook page. And uh, it'd be good if we had some people there just to take some videos of some of the dialogue and some of the conversation that hopefully uh, will take place. We're really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a really great uh, great time and a great opportunity to get out there and do some evangelism. So, well, we are about out of time. Greg, let, let, me, let me run through a couple of questions with you and uh, just kind of some of the common objections sometimes that you will hear from unbelievers. And... Uh, Tell us how, how we respond. So someone walks up to your booth and says, uh, you know, I just read uh, Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, and according to that book, he says, you know, one of the biggest devastating blows that would uh, make belief in God really irrational is this idea that, well, if, if God created the universe, then who created God? Which were Yeah, and so... That would just be bad philosophy, and so that would—that's uh, just a category mistake, basically. And so that would be like me coming up to you, Devin, and asking you what the color blue smells like. 
And you would say, well, that doesn't, that's irrational. Blue doesn't smell like anything. It's, 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 you've just put something in the wrong category. And so, and, and on top of that, you can continuing on in philosophy, there's, there's this infinite regress of causation that would be impossible. And, the, and, the, and the, one of the reasons why we know that having an infant, infinite regress of causation, causes is impossible is because there would have to be an infinite amount of time that would have already had passed before now. But we're at the now. And measure and, and have accountability for the now. And so it's just irrational to think that an infinite amount of time could have already happened before now because we're in the now. We would never be in the now. And so, and and God, of course, wouldn't be a supreme being holding the attributes that that are naturally derived from Scripture and from general revelation if he was caused by something. Yeah, that's good. But I would have to break that down because I would have to also figure out where is this person in his education level. I'd have to you know, also consider that he might have some emotional barriers and he's just throwing this up, this intellectual barrier to hide his emotional barrier. And so sometimes I'll ask further questions and and depending on where I think he is, I might have to really break this down and get rid of technical language and maybe see if I can learn about him and love him and be patient and maybe just listen for a little bit longer. So there's a lot that's involved in on top of that. We got to pray real spiritual warfare going on. Absolutely. Well, folks, we hope that you will join us out there. It's going to be a great event. Um, we'll be out there, me and my wife, I believe, at the Ratio Christie table. And uh, really, really looking forward to that. So if you're in the area, come on out, say hello, and uh, enjoy a hot dog. And a, I think the, we're playing uh, playing God's Not Dead, the movie, that night. Is that correct? Yeah. In the park, when we start breaking things down at 1030, if you want to stick around and do movie in the park, we're playing God's Not Dead, Dead on a massive screen. And by the way, if any of you want to have a festival like this in your area, just contact us, truthfestival.org. We would, we would absolutely love to turn this into a grassroots movement. We basically supply personnel and resources and help other people lead it and do it. There you go. All right, Greg, and I've talked to Greg, and I've told Greg that I would love him to fill in for me from time to time when I can't do the show. Sometimes, you know, we've got things that come up, and so we need an extra host. So I'm trying to uh, twist his arm into hosting a couple of these shows for us, and I think he would do a great job. And, uh, Greg, I just appreciate you. I just, you know... uh, I wish people knew your 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 heart for evangelism and your love for people because it's uh it's really inspiring to me. Sometimes apologists uh you know they can get a bad rap for uh, not being loving. You know they have a lot of head knowledge but not uh, as much love in their heart. And you know whether that's true or not, I don't know. I've met some people like that, and so there's probably some truth to that. But uh, Greg is a good guy, and he represents. Um, you know, the way apologists should be. So appreciate your friendship and uh, and uh, all that and look forward to working with you at the, the Truth Project this Saturday. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. On the Truth and, Project. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's all right. I appreciate it. And I feel the same way about you guys. I want the listeners to know that, look, you know, Melissa came on and was talking about them shifting to Ratio Christie full-time. 
these are the guys you want to support. And the reason I say that is because they're not just on the radio show. They're not just in the books. I see them out in the streets. I've seen Melissa outside of abortion clinics. I've seen Devin in the streets doing evangelism. And I had the privilege. The Lord's allowed me to serve with them. And so these are, these guys are the guys you want to support. I appreciate that. I really, really appreciate the support, bro. And uh, look forward to, to uh, eating some chili dogs and hanging out with you on Saturday. <laughs> yeah. God bless you. Thank you. Good deal. All right, man. Say hello to your, your, your wife and the babies. All right. Will do. God bless, buddy. Yep. All right, folks. We are going to go ahead and make a little transition here. We are going to bring on uh, my good friend Adam Johnson. But let's go ahead and take a uh, commercial break first. We'll come back. We're going to be dealing with the life and thought of uh, Francis Schaefer and kind of look at some of his apologetic methodology. Uh, we're going to open up the phone lines about 7 o'clock, so about 30 minutes from now. So uh, write your questions down, and uh, we'll be back in a moment. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. The church, ultimately, in which I am called to be a member, is what we call the invisible church, whose members include every person who has ever been a believer in Christ. Martin Luther is a member of my congregation. St. Augustine is a member of my church. And when we come and worship together as a community on Sunday morning, we're not just having fellowship with each other, but we have a mystical union with Christ, and Christ has the mystical union with all of his people. So by virtue of our communion with Christ, we also are in communion with all of the saints, with all of the people of God. It transcends space. It transcends time. For today's special offer, visit RenewingYourMind.org. You're listening to the Ankerberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author, Dr. John Ankerberg. Some Christians are uninterested in the secular philosophical ideas taught in our universities because they seem unimportant. But is it right to ignore these ideas? I believe we do so to our detriment. Ideas being debated in our colleges and universities will eventually make their way to our government leaders and spread throughout society. The great Princeton theologian J. Gresham Machen once said, What is today a matter of academic speculation begins tomorrow to move armies and pull down empires. As Christians, we must not stand by and allow unbiblical ideas to gain ground. Jesus insisted that we love God with our minds. It is part of our duty to engage the world of ideas with biblical truth. For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One Minute Apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack for the audience. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Dr. Howe, what do Jehovah's Witnesses believe? Jehovah's Witnesses, let's look at what they believe about Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses actually believe that Jesus Christ is Michael the Archangel from the Old Testament who became a man in the New Testament, did his work for God, and then now is Michael the Archangel again. So he's not God in the flesh as Christianity and the Bible has always taught. What would they say about salvation? Most of these groups, in fact, I don't know any of these groups that that, that doesn't say that salvation is by works. 
and note and Jehovah's Witnesses are very explicit that a person cannot be saved by faith alone, but has to do the appropriate works in order to be able to be with God after death. All right, folks, we are back, and we are going to continue our show with looking at the second part of our segment. We're going to be interviewing my friend Adam Johnson. Adam graduated with a Master's in Divinity from a degree from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is currently Associate Pastor at the TKK Baptist Church in South Carolina and is working on a Ph.D. in Theological uh, Studies at South Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, Adam will be sharing about the thought and apologetics of our late Francis Schaefer. So looks like it's going to be a good show. Adam, are you there? I am, yeah. Hi, guys. How's it going, man? It's going well. Are you guys getting any rain down in Rock Hill? Well, I'm actually in Fort Mill with you. So. <laughs> oh, okay. You're even uh, closer than I, I thought. Yeah, I actually haven't even peeked out the window. So is it, is it raining out there? It was coming down pretty hard about a half an hour ago, but it's it's uh, let up a little bit now. Yeah, well, that's the, the one of the fun things about living in the South, you know, is the the weather kind of <laughs> comes and goes, and especially in the summertime, get some crazy weather. So that's anyway, right. man, it's uh, great to have you on the show, and I uh, really been looking looking forward to to, to doing the show. Tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to know the Lord, and how did you get interested in, uh, in studying apologetics? Yeah, I became a Christian when I was in high school. I was about 17 years old, but uh, it wasn't long after that. I would say late teens, early 20s, that I had a, I guess you could call maybe a crisis of faith, where I just had a lot of struggles and questions and doubts about Christianity. Um, I had some theology that was a little bit messed up too as I look back on it now and it just led me kind of down a, a dark path but uh, by the grace of God when I was in the midst of that crisis somebody handed me um, Schaefer's trilogy which if, um, if anybody of your listeners are familiar his trilogy is uh, three of his main books uh, The God Who Is There, Escape From Reason and He Is There and He Is Not Silent all put together in one book so three books in one and uh read that and really just changed my life in so many ways. It helped me to understand what faith is, um, what apologetics is all about, and uh, it just had a huge impact on my life. So that's one of the things that really drove me uh, into apologetics. And then when I um, ended up in uh, my Ph.D. program at Southeastern, as you mentioned, uh, I come to find out that that seminary, had uh, the Francis Schaeffer Collection, which is a huge treasure trove of uh, information that the Schaeffer family has uh, given Southeastern Seminary in in custodianship to digitalize all of these all of these resources, his personal correspondence, all of his books and articles he annotated, old audio videotapes of Labrie lectures going back to the the 50s, I mean, old, old stuff. His his seminary uh, notes back to the 30s, um, really, wow. really cool stuff. So I've been helping my mentoring professor, which is Dr. Bruce Little, 
um, do some research in that. And it's been, you know, it's just like studying one of your heroes. It's 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 not only an academic experience. I tell people it's it's been a spiritual experience as well. Yeah, it's it's funny because I just you know I've done apologetics for for several years now, and uh, I just have not taken the time to to, to study. Francis Schaeffer. I think what got me interested in it was listening to some of uh, uh, Nancy Piercy's stuff. Yes. And uh, from everybody that I talked to, they say she's uh, like one of the best uh, kind of representatives of his kind of thought and apologetic method. And so uh, really, really excited to to dive in and, and learn a little bit more about um, Francis Schaeffer. So, yeah. Uh, you got wife and you got a wife and kids, right? You wanted to maybe give a shout out to them so that so your <laughs> I wife do. Uh... <laughs> I'd love to. Yeah, thanks for letting me be on the show. I really appreciate it. And yeah, my my wife, we got married uh, awful awful young. We were both eighteen years old when we got married, if you can believe that. And uh, wow. started having kids a few years later, and so we've been married now. This summer, let me think in my head. Yeah, we're almost we're coming up on 19 years this summer we've been married. Wow. And so my my four children, we had a girl, Caroline first, she's 16, and then three boys in a row. Will's 14, Sanders 12, and my youngest Raymond is 9. Wow. Wonderful. Nice uh nice beautiful family. That's that's great. Talk talk to us for a moment too about kind of um your pastor at uh Associate Pastor at TEK Baptist Church. Talk to us a little bit about um, apologetics and uh, the pastorate. How does that How does that work? A lot of times we just don't hear a lot about uh, you know pastors really engaging in apologetics. Especially you know there are pastors that do that, but kind of in the the popular realm today, it's it's all about uh, you know motivational type. Uh, speaking and, you know, church planting, et cetera, and they don't really <laughs> sometimes focus on apologetics or theology. How has yeah. how has apologetics and that helped you out? Well, I tell In you fact, what, everybody's gifted differently. I mean, you talk about motivation. I mean, there is there is something to the gift of exhortation. I mean, I, I recognize that as a legitimate gift, and I think I'm thankful for people who have that gift. I don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, but I'm gifted. I'm built. I'm designed, however you want to say it, in different ways. And I'm very passionate about apologetics and, and deep thinking about theology. And I I think, you know, that's that's needed in the church. And there's lots of things needed in the church. We need great worship. We need great exhortation. We need great evangelism. Um, so I'm not saying, you know, the, the things that I do, the things that I am passionate about are the only things that need to be done. But they are they right. are something that shouldn't fall by the wayside. And I think apologetics um, is very, very useful and very, very necessary, I would even say, in the local church. Because there's, you know, one thing that I found when I went through my crisis of faith, I I was very embarrassed by it. I, I don't know how to say it any other way, but I just, I felt like I was the only, <laughs> you know what most people do when they're young, they feel like they're the only one who has a zit on their nose, or they're the only one that, whatever. I felt like I was the only one who had these these doubts and questions, and so I was embarrassed to talk about them. But when I... When I did start talking about it, you know what? I found out that there's so many people around me who were struggling with the exact same things. And that's when God at least showed me how I could be useful to others in sharing with them what I learned. And so, 
Yeah, I mean, and that's continued for, what now, almost 20 years, helping youth, helping uh, young people, helping uh, any age, really, just think through, why do we believe these things? I mean, is it just wishful thinking? Is there any uh, evidence? Is there any reason behind it? So I I find it extremely helpful in ministry. Where do you think that uh, kind of the, the church is at uh, as far as, apologetics and uh, I guess I guess what I mean by that is this you know um, though there's not a lot of churches that do apologetics what I've found is when you introduce apologetics to the church the people really seem to like it they seem to really gravitate towards it um, and kind of with the uh, with the onslaught of new uh, Christian apologetic books and uh, even movies and stuff now you know talking to talking to uh, our friend Greg Walker, you know, he's saying uh, at the Truth Festival we're going to be showing the movie God's Not Dead, etc. So, yeah. kind of, in your perception, do you think uh, Christians nowadays are more open to apologetics than maybe times in the past, or what are, what are your thoughts on that? I think so. I definitely think so. I mean, you want to have a big historical picture on this issue, and... Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I read some some church history and stuff in the in the 1800s, and, and and I was just completely blown away because you know I was reading in the early 1800s, and there were there were apologetic conferences going on, there were apologetic debates going on. I mean, apologetics was a was a pretty big thing, but in the late 1800s, liberalism, the 1900s, fundal, fundamentalist movement, we all kind of when I say we, I say Christians you know, kind of ran away from culture, ran away from intellectual things. And, of course, liberalism, um, it's not going to fight those battles, obviously. So apologetics kind of died out in that sense. And for, I don't know, 100, 150 years, it it just wasn't a very... But then you see um, folks like Francis Schaeffer, folks like uh, Norm Geisler, folks, folks like others in the, oh, I don't know, what do you want to say, 50s, 60s, 70s, start making a comeback and... Now, wow, 50 years later, apologetics is, I think, has uh, become more of a thing again, and it's it's becoming huge. What do you what do you think happened towards the late 1800s? Why why is it do you think that uh, kind of apologetics fell by the wayside? Well, of course, you know you have um, you know the movement of liberalism, where you know they they didn't have any interest in doing apologetics or defending the faith. Um, For them, faith wasn't as much about uh, propositions and content and reasons and proof and evidence. It was more of an internal thing. It was more of a, I don't want to use the word feeling, that would be, you know, making a a straw man argument, but that sort of thing. It was more of an internal um, uh, type of thing. It wasn't, the emphasis wasn't on whether it was true or not, whether the emphasis was on whether it was useful, whether it gave you 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 personal meaning for your life, and you know a lot of Christian denominations got caught up in that, and even so are today. And then those that are were more conservative, they um, you know they lost some key battles early on. I think about the fall of, of of Princeton and stuff like that, and so they kind of maybe they ran away from the fight, and uh, you know they have the again probably uh, overgeneralizing here, but fundamentalist movement who just kind of shied away from intellectual things. There was kind of an anti-intellectualism there, but with, you know, evangelicalism, and uh, you think of Billy Graham and everything that happened with, 
you know, evangelicals wanting to engage the culture more, apologetics became more in vogue. And I, and I think um, rightfully so, I think biblically so, I think apologetics is becoming stronger and stronger because we're we're doing, I think, what, you know, God has instructed us to do, and that is defend the faith, First Peter 3.15, in a loving, respectful way. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things where if, if you are going to share your faith, especially, you know, today's culture, and maybe maybe it wasn't as bad, probably, in the heyday of Billy Graham, uh, but especially in today's culture, it just seems like scientism is kind of the uh, epistemology of the day. And so mm. if we're going to be faithful to what the scriptures say, if we're going to go out and we're going to evangelize, you know, we're talking about the, the truth festival this Saturday, the only way you're going to be able to do something like that is if you're willing to be able to engage in some sort of apologetics because people have... Uh, People have a lot of questions. I know that, you know, as far as atheism in America, it's probably, uh, I'm, not, I don't know, I'm not even sure. It's probably fairly low, probably, I would think, yeah. under 12%, right? Yeah, I would say the so, number is pretty low. I mean, real hardcore atheist, yeah. Yeah, but then you go to the university, and if you were just to look at the universities, I think uh, the percentage goes up pretty radically, pretty, pretty, pretty radically high there. So... Um, you know, maybe not on the mainstream, it's, it, it, it doesn't catch on, but in the universities, especially I'd say where I'm at Ratio Christi, um, it is extremely, not the people, I should say. Winthrop's a great university, they've been open with us and letting us do stuff, but, uh, you know, the people are very much, uh, the majority of them are not Christians. And so yeah. it's, it's one of these things where uh, it's important if we're going to engage the culture we have to know uh, something about apologetics. Not everyone, uh, you know, I love what you said about as far as, uh, you know, you're built a certain way, other people are built a certain way. Uh, so, you know, we don't all have the same the same gifts. Um, mm-hmm. But we all should know something about, you know, being able to do a little bit of apologetics, uh, uh, nothing else. Because if we're going to evangelize, people are going to ask questions, and, you know, it's just uh, one of those things that that's how God designed it. And so we need to be you know, faithful and, and study to show ourselves approved. So let's uh, let's I get agree. into get into the thought and life of, of Francis Schaeffer a little bit. Talk, talk to us a little bit about who is Francis Schaeffer, where was he born, and uh, kind of what set him on his journey. And then from there, uh, I'll ask you some more questions about kind of his method, etc. Yeah, sure. Well, um, Schaefer was born here in America. He grew up here in America, I want to say the northeast um, area of the country, and wasn't raised in a Christian home, became a Christian kind of on his own from uh, reading the scripture and, and delving into philosophy, just trying to understand you know, what life was all about, um, became a Christian when he read the Bible and realized that the, the Bible had the answers to many of the questions that were being um, asked in philosophy became a Christian at a relatively young age and went to study um, at, uh, studied with a lot of the great um, early um, guys in uh, the uh, conservative Christian, or I'm sorry, conservative Presbyterian movement. So he was part of that group that uh, left uh, Princeton to start Westminster and Westminster Seminary when the you know, the, I guess you could say the conservatives lost uh, Princeton. So he went with the group, um, started Westminster. He was a student there, so he studied under 
uh, Machen and uh, Cornelius Van Til. And, you know, ended up graduating then from yet uh, another school. Uh, there was another split even after that, Westminster split. He served in the States at a couple different pastorates, associate pastor and then two senior pastorates. His longest one was in uh, St. Louis. I believe he was there for uh, 10 years, I want to say, something like that. This would have been in the late 30s to the um, mid to late 40s. He served there in in, uh, in, in St. Louis. Well, he was part of the, um, the smaller conservative Presbyterian denomination that broke off from the mainline, more liberal denomination. And um, they wanted to find out what was going on in Europe. This was after World War II, and, and uh, this little conservative Presbyterian denomination sent him over to Europe just for a summer, and he went there by himself and pretty much just toured uh, Europe, and uh, they wanted just to see how things how things were going after you know the Great War, World War II. And he came back, and he said uh, after the summer, he, he came back and reported. He said, you know, Europe, your uh, Europe is in shambles, as you can imagine. Uh, World War II has really crushed it. I mean, their infrastructure, their roads, their buildings, the people are downtrodden. I mean, it, it was just you know a, a catastrophe. But he said there's something even worse than that. Um, and that is this uh, liberalism that has really killed Christianity. And so there's something worse than World War II that has hit Europe, and that is this liberalism. And and he just said, you know, Europe is 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 spiritually almost dead. And um, so this little conservative Presbyterian denomination, they said, well, we've got to send a missionary to Europe then, of all places. Um, which is weird, because, you know, Europe is the one who used to send out all the missionaries and so they wanted to send somebody from America back over to Europe as a missionary of sorts, and they ended up sending uh, none other than Francis Schaeffer. So Schaeffer then moved with um, his family and his children to Switzerland and uh, set up shop there in Switzerland as missionaries, basically, and had um, some really, really neat ministries to children and just tried to, to do missionary work there in Switzerland. And long story short, um, they ended up um, really having a strong ministry to young, um, if you will, intellectuals, young people um, in the colleges and the universities who just were struggling with the philosophy, existentialism of the day, questions, uh, the meaning of life. This, you know, this rolled up into the 50s and 60s where they had this ministry called uh, Labri, which uh, just means shelter. And people that, you know, hundreds and thousands of people would go and, and study with them um, in their chateau. Talk about, uh, oh, looks like he has dropped off, but he will be calling right back in a minute, I'm sure. Um, it's interesting, though. You know, as, as I've, uh, again, I've uh, listened to some of Nancy Piercy's talks. Um, they talk about uh, his uh, apologetic being uh, one of, of great love, uh, not just you know, propositional facts, et cetera, but also um, you know, loving people. So he, uh, let's see, Adam, you there, buddy? Hello? Yeah, sorry about yeah, that. I don't know what happened. Somehow dropped you there. Sorry about that. Go, go right ahead. So did you hear about uh, what I said about Labrie then? 
Uh, I think it kind of cut out right when you started uh, talking about Liberty. Okay. So they had this ministry then where hundreds and, I mean, thousands of people would go and study with him and Edith and their family and the other Liberty workers. And it was just a place that got to be known all around the world as a place where you could come and get your questions answered. And I mean, there's a lot of ministries like that today, but in the time, you know, the 50s and 60s, this was this was kind of a, a unique thing. And so people would come, uh, people from Christian families, young uh, men and women from Christian families who were disillusioned, who weren't getting their questions answered at their church or in their families would flock to him. And he just uh, it got a lot of um, publicity, got a lot of attention, if you will. And, you know, Time Magazine did an article on him and, you know, kind of talked it up a little bit, said, there, you know, there's a wise man on the mountain. You can go get your questions answered. And he, I mean, he didn't like that publicity, obviously, but he wanted to be available, just like, you know, us apologists today. We want to be available and, and help people, and, and he did. He helped so many people and he would come over to the states from time to time and do speaking tours and his his um uh his talks at Wheaton College in 1965 is what really gar- garnered him the fame I guess you could say that we that we associate with him today it wasn't until 1965 so you know after wow. many 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 years of ministry you know, he would have been, what, 53 years old at that time. These talks he gave at Wheaton, it would be the 50 year, 50th year anniversary is this year of these talks, is really what put him on the map. And after that, his ministry just exploded. It's when he started writing his books and wrote 20-plus books that have been used all around the world and have, and have blessed so many, so many people. So let me let me ask you: How long did the, did he run the Labrie ministry there? How many how, how many years did he do that? I want to say it was started in 1955. Um, I'm pretty pretty confident about that day. And um, I mean, he ran it as best he could up until he passed away in 1984. I mean, um, in the 70s, he he did a lot of traveling and speaking. Um, but And then, of course, he was doing a lot of writing, and then he, he got cancer later in life and so had to, to move his headquarters, so to speak, uh, back to the States. But uh, Labrie exists even, even to today. There are Labrie uh, shelters. I believe there's five or six of them all around the world. Wow, so that's it's been a he's probably affected a, a lot of people with his with his thoughts, etc. So that's that's really amazing. That's that's uh, that's exactly what it's all about. So let's talk a little bit about his, I guess, some some of his thoughts and apologetic methodology. Yeah. Well, um, he, a lot of. <laughs> I guess I've gotten to the point where I don't try to define his apologetic method anymore uh, with one word. I mean, he's been called all sorts of things. I mean, he's been called a modified presuppositionalist. He's been called, you know, a presuppositionalist. He's been called you know, a lot of different terms. Do, do, me a, do me a favor, Adam, too. Kind of define the different apologetic methodologies just so people are aware of the of the contrast as well, if you don't mind. Me. Okay, sure. Well, I guess the, uh, I don't know if you want to call it the, maybe the easiest one to understand, but um, just the most basic one is 
what some people might call um, evidentialism, where you know evidentialists will put a a lot of emphasis, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, a lot of emphasis on evidences. So they're gonna you know they're gonna put a lot of e- um, emphasis on historical evidences, you know historical evidences uh, that the Bible is historically accurate, historical evidence um, for the resurrection, for the life of Jesus, archaeology, you know, evidences um, would be very important to them. Um, And you have, you know, folks who might be called classical apologists or sometimes referred to as traditional apologetics, classical. And these are folks that, you know, they they understand the, uh, the importance of evidences, but they they think it's better to start maybe if you're going to make a logical case for Christianity it's probably better to start with the existence of God and so they're going to put a lot more emphasis on you know what could be called classical arguments for God um the argument from design the argument from first cause the moral argument and they're going to want to establish first of all that God exists and then they think you know that that then you can start bringing in the historical evidences so it's not a disagreement as much of a maybe just a different emphasis. Um, and then presuppositionalists would kind of be, oh, I don't know if you want to call them the new kids on the block, but it's you know a relatively new way or a, a new approach or a new methodology and and it you know it, it depends it depends on who you talk to whether they <laughs> how they're going to define presuppositionalism whether they like it or they don't like it but what. <laughs> The classic, I mean, the the Van Til, Cornelius Van Til, is kind of the father of this method, and and um, you know the things that he would say is is you, you know, you you really need to start off um, presupposing. That's why it's called presuppositionalism. You really need to start off uh, presupposing that God exists and the Bible is true. Otherwise, nothing else is going to make sense. Uh, logic isn't going to make sense. Um, morality, I mean, nothing is going to make sense. You can't even really reason or develop an argument unless you first um, have that, that God's existence and the Bible is true. And so it's, some people call it the transcendental argument, and it's just a, it's one way to go about it. But depending on who you are and if you like it or not, um, some people can lean towards uh, presuppositionalism for different reasons, some people lean towards it um, for philosophical reasons. Uh, some people lean towards it for um, theological reasons. I know it's it's um, a method that's often associated with Calvinists, um, those who would say, you know, you preach the gospel and uh, the elect will believe and the non-elect won't. And that's that's really it. That's just, you know... All the evidential apologetics and the traditional apologetics, they're they're fine, but really, I mean, the focus is just preach the gospel, the elect will believe, the non-elect won't, and then you just move on and you, you keep preaching the gospel. So that, again, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing, I'm probably painting a, a, a straw man, but that's the that position uh, lends itself well with presuppositionalism. Okay. Okay, great. So how would we say... Uh, Francis Schaeffer, where does he kind of fit in that spectrum? Yeah, well, see, and that's where, you know, people have defined him in different ways. I mean, people have labeled him, and they, people have invented new labels to try to describe him. But, you know, 
Schaefer was one of those guys, and you know a lot of us say it nowadays. I mean, it's it's almost cliche to say it now, but I think he was one of the first ones who recognized that look, there there isn't a one size fits all. Um, people are different. People have different personalities. People have. You just don't want to take a mechanical approach towards apologetics and just kind of say, okay, you know, ABC, um, and move on to the next person. Okay, ABC. Like your previous um, person you were talking to on the show, I think it's um, he had a great point. You know, you get to know the person. You find out where their struggles are, what they're wrestling with. Are they wrestling with the existence of God? Well, then great. You know, um, go towards that and, and, and work on trying to help them see all the evidence that God exists. If they already believe in God, well, you don't, you know, you don't need to concentrate there. Maybe they're wondering on, you know, which religion is correct. Then they believe that God is is there. They just don't know which religion accurately um, understands Him. And so you can work on the historical evidences, the you know historical reliability of the New Testament, the fulfilled prophecy. It just, a lot of it just depends on the person. So that's the first thing that Schaefer would say is, look, I'm not I'm not going to promote just one method that you always use all the time. It depends on the person. Again, we say that all the time now. It's kind of cliche, but he was unique, I think, one of the first to, to come out saying those sort of things. So one thing that Schaefer, again, he studied under Cornelius Van Til, and, uh, who was you know the father of presuppositionalism, and Schaefer always said that he really, really appreciated um, Van Til's emphasis on presuppositions. So he admired Van Til for that, and he got he learned a lot from Van Til about uh, people's presuppositions. But at the same time, Schaefer would say that he had a different understanding of what presuppositions are than Cornelius Van Til. And so what Schaefer would say is that you know, presuppositions are things you you bring to the table, uh, things that you well, what, what you and I would say, Devin, is we would use the term worldview. We would talk about how people, everybody has a worldview. They have a way okay. that they view the world, and that's that's really all that Schaefer meant when he used the term pre, presuppositions. That's what he was meaning. Okay. It's just a person's worldview, and so he said and this is what made him a little bit different than Van Til, he said that uh, presuppositions can be evaluated, presuppositions can be looked at, and they should be evaluated. You should look at your own presuppositions. Um, you know, you should evaluate them. You should then choose the presuppositions that best match up and make sense out of reality, um, that make sense of the real world. And he was very famous for using this phrase. He would say... Um, the universe, when, he, when he talked about reality, he was talking about the universe and its form and the mannishness of man. So the universe, the fact that, that there is something there rather than nothing, the fact that it has form, i.e. a design, and then the mannishness of man, that we all have this, um, these moral motions, we have this, these human aspirations, and, and that's the real world. And what, what, what presuppositions or what worldview best matches up with that reality. And so, you know, he had a lot of affinity. I mean, a lot of um, evidentialist, traditional apologetics liked the things that he was doing. Um, some of them didn't think, thought he was a little bit too presuppositional. Uh, the hardcore presuppositionals didn't like him because they thought he was, you know, too evidentialist. 
so I mean he was kind of in between he um had uh people who criticized him from both ends but again he he wasn't against traditional apologetics he he you know he'd use the traditional apologetics if that's what the person was struggling with if they didn't believe that God exists what he found with the traditional apologetics and again he was a student of the old school Princeton guys so we're talking Hodge Warfield the you know what you think of traditional apologetics in the 1800s the guys at, at Princeton there he was a big fan of them but the only thing he thought was that that method of apologetics again traditional classical apologetics didn't there was no, he didn't have anything wrong he didn't have any um, problems with it per se he just felt like um, the people he was trying to minister with that it wasn't very effective with them. I mean, if he found that it was effective and it was it was useful for people, he would use it. He wouldn't have any problem with it um, from a theological perspective. He just didn't found he just didn't find that the people. And again, he was working in the 50s and the 60s in Europe, so he was seeing the things that were about ready to jump over the pond to us. So he was dealing with existentialism, um, not quite postmodernism yet, but things that were leaning towards postmodernism, like. Uh, structuralism, post-structuralism. He was dealing with those type of um, people who were struggling with those things in Europe. And so what he found was uh, his method um, was more effective in, in helping those people understand reality. Wow, very, very good stuff. Um, I'm excited to, to kind of keep diving into this. Uh, folks, our phone lines, we'll go ahead and open them up. If you uh, have a question about the uh, thought and life of Francis Schaeffer, now would be the, a good time to call. Uh, Adam is a is a very knowledgeable in this area, and so would definitely suggest people take the time call in. The number is seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. Uh, what uh, could you? I know he. You said he went and started with Westminster, and that. Uh, what are what are some of his, I guess, popular works uh, that people today would be reading if someone wanted to to kind of learn more about Schaefer today? Uh, what, what are what are a few of his top kind of popular level uh, books? I guess would be the way to say it. Yeah, well, first with uh, biographies. There's several biographies out there about him. The one I would recommend is by uh, Colin Duryez, just called uh, Francis Schaeffer, An Authentic Life. So if you just want to read a bio, um, that'd be a great one. And for, in terms of his works, um, I guess there's there's probably five I would recommend. Again, I've talked about the trilogy already, so that's going to be what he described as kind of the hub of his work that everything revolves around. And that is his first book, The God Who Is There, uh, Escape from Reason, and then He Is There and He Is Not Silent. You can buy all three of those books packaged together as one called the Trilogy. So that's three books. Um, one book that kind of came from his own spiritual crisis that he had um, in the late 40s before he started Labrie, uh, late 40s and early 50s, he had a spiritual crisis where he he almost gave up on Christianity. He he just didn't see much fruit in his life. He was getting very frustrated by all the bickering and fighting amongst Christians. And he just kind of had to start all over again and say, is this really true? 
And um, a book that came out of that struggle that he had, obviously he you know he concluded again that Christianity is true, and I think that crisis is is what he looks back on as kind of the foundation of what Labrie got birthed out of is just coming back to Christ again and seeing you know how to live with Christ moment by moment um, a real spiritual life anyway the book that came out of that spiritual crisis and then his his healing afterwards is a book called True Spirituality and going back to your previous um uh, person you were talking with it, that's that's one of the remarkable things about Schaefer is he was one of those guys who wasn't just uh, a brainiac. I mean, he was. He he had a huge intellectual ministry, but he also had a heart for people. And when you read true spiritual true spirituality, it's all about depending on the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit. I mean, you you almost think the the guy's charismatic. I mean, he's he's so into the Holy Spirit, and then praise God for that. I mean, if we're not if we're not doing our ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're we're being presumptuous. We might as well just go home. So that's a great book. That's the fourth one. And then the fifth one um, I'd recommend is um, How Should We Then Live? And this was written towards, I want to say, the mid to late 70s. And this is a really cool book, which um, and that there is a video series he put together to go along with it that really highlights just the intellectual uh, movements over the last oh, thousand years, and how we've come to be where we're at today. I mean, all of his books do that to some extent, but How Should We Then Live is just very good in, in highlighting you know, where where things went wrong in Western thinking, Western intellectual movements, and how it's gotten us into this mess that we're in today. So that's, it's, it's, those are the five books that I'd recommend of his. Great. I will definitely have to pick a few of those up. I know uh, I'm actually sitting here at my desk, and I'm looking at... How Now Shall We Live uh, by Charles Colson and Nancy Piercy. Did they kind of redo the, is this based off of his original work or is it a different work? Or I have not read that book myself, but my understanding is, yeah, they, they you know, took his title and changed it a little bit um, in honor of him and, and was, you know, furthering and discussing some of the same issues. But, yeah. Um, okay. I might say, I might say something if, if you'd like, um, a little bit more about his apologetic method. Yeah, please do. I'm, I'm just going to kind of kind of turn it over to you and just let you kind of go where you want to go in this interview. Okay. Just because, you know, I don't know a whole lot about him, and so I don't know, you know, the best questions to ask. So you, you just kind of you kind of lead the discussion. Well, I felt like I was a little bit nebulous kind of saying what he, you know, talking about his apologetic method and, and trying to explain. But let me just give you a, more of a concrete example of, of exactly what he would do with somebody, okay? So he, you know, he like I said, he would get try to get to know the person, ask them a bunch of questions, you know, get to know where they're at, what they're thinking, what they believe. But here's here's how he would explain his apologetic method. Again, you can call it whatever you want. I, I, I think it's... I don't I don't know how helpful it is to just describe his apologetic in, in a word or two by inventing a new name for it. Um, if that's helpful to some people, you know, it might be. But I think it takes, you know, a good five or ten minutes to really explain what he would do. And, and then and then you can call that method whatever you want. Call it the Francis Schaeffer method, I guess. But um, what he would do, and, and picture, if you would, maybe a continuum. Uh, you know, a continuum... 
You can think of, uh, you know, whatever, Republicans and Democrats. You know, you got the left and the right and then everything in between. Uh, continuum between um, 0 to 100. You know, 0 on one side, 100 on the other side. And then there's things in the middle, right? So you can, you know, and everything falls on a continuum. Um, whether you hate something, love something, and then there's other opinions in between, right? So there's what Schaefer would find out um, you know, if he, he was talking with somebody who wasn't a Christian, he would try to find out where the person was on a particular uh, continuum. And this is the continuum he was talking about. On one side of the continuum, you have somebody who is consistent with their non-Christian presuppositions. So, excuse me, he's, he's talking about somebody who has a non-Christian worldview, believes that God doesn't exist, the Bible isn't true, um, et cetera, et cetera. So those are their, that's their worldview, that's their presuppositions. And so on the left-hand side of this continuum, we have somebody who is consistent with those presuppositions. But if they're consistent with their presuppositions, then they're a long ways away from the real world. In other words, um, if somebody's consistent with their pre, non-Christian presuppositions, um, Schaefer would say then then they they really can't believe that morality and love exist. Um, you'd have to conclude, starting out with non-Christian presuppositions, that all we are is just a, as Bertrand Russell said, a um, an accidental allocation of atoms. We're just random matter. We're just a random accident in the universe. And love is just a, and morality is just a, um, a random accident that nature evolution selected because it helped us, gave us greater chances for survival and reproduction. So it's it's just an illusion. Um, so if somebody's consistent with their non-Christian presuppositions, then they're you know a long ways away from the real world. And remember what he defined as the real world. That is the universe in its form and the mannishness of man. So you know you have to deny that the universe. Um, has a form, uh, you would deny that uh, there is such a thing as the mannishness of man, there is such a thing, there isn't such a thing as moral motions, all those things are illusions. So this person, and Schaefer really didn't find anybody like this. I mean, he said that, that there's just there's just not anybody who's really courageous enough to live consistently with their non-Christian presuppositions. It, it just doesn't exist. Maybe one or two, but he said in his... In his 50-plus years of ministries, he just didn't find many people on that extreme end of the continuum. Well, so here we got the other end of the continuum then. We've got the other end of the continuum being those who, people who are inconsistent with their presuppositions, their non-Christian presuppositions. So they, you know, they don't believe that God exists. They don't believe the Bible is true. Um, but yet they, they do believe in love. They do believe in morality. Maybe even objective morality. Um, they, ha you know, they believe in all these things, which, as Schaefer would say, are all inconsistent. You know, again, if we're just random accident of the universe, if all there is is the materialistic uh, universe, then you know, nothing, love and morality can't be, can't exist beyond just our own personal preferences for pleasure and pain. So right. um, if some if somebody does believe in those things, well, then they're inconsistent with their non-Christian presuppositions. But, and here's the thing, they're closer to the real world. They're closer right. to the real world in the sense that they, 
you know, believe in the universe and its form and the mannishness of man. They believe in morality. They believe in love. So in that sense, they're closer to the real world. So again, let me just review. The, you can say, if you picture it in your mind, the left side of the continuum, somebody who's consistent with their non-Christian presuppositions is very, very far away from the real world. Somebody on the right-hand side of the continuum is somebody who's inconsistent with their non-Christian presuppositions, but they're closer to the real world. They believe in things like love and morality. And there's you know, there's people in between, obviously. I mean, nobody's at one of those extremes. Everybody's in between. But which closer are they to is what Schaefer would find out. And then, after Schaefer understood that about the person, then he would know what tact or what... I don't want to say what tact, because that makes it sound like a person is just a somebody we're trying to defeat or uh, or fight against. His method of trying to help the person um, would be dependent on where they fell on the continuum, right? So, for instance, if somebody was way on the left-hand side of the continuum and they they were consistent with their pre their non-Christian presuppositions, they didn't believe. You know, that, that um, let's say they didn't believe in objective morality. Well, what Schaefer would do is just say, come on, really? Uh, you don't believe in love? You, know, you don't love your, your wife or your husband or your boyfriend? Are you, are you telling me that's just a chemical reaction? You, you know there's something more to that. In other words, he would wow. try to push them down towards the other end of the continuum. You know what I'm saying? Well, right. okay, so how about how about a person over there then? Um well, and of course, okay, let me let me finish with the, the first person. So yeah, you know, you get somebody to realize that love does exist. You know, love is true. And then you, you go into the moral argument for God, in a sense. Say, you know, what's the best explanation for that? If morality, if love really does exist, what's the best explanation for that? Well, it's that we live in a personal universe. It's that um, personality is actually the... Uh, um, foundation of this universe that it's uh, this universe came from a person it was created by a person and that that explains better than anything else why we have personality and why love is a real thing because love comes from the person who made us and it's love has existed for um uh, all eternity among the the members of the trinity so love is the foundation of the universe in a sense because it came from a person well, so the okay, let's say then you have an individual at the other end of the spectrum, other end of the continuum, and they are um they're closer to the real world. Uh they but you don't let's say they believe in love, they believe in morality. They're closer to the real world in that sense, but um uh, they're they're inconsistent with their non Christian presuppositions. And this is what Schaefer would do. Um he, he called it taking the roof off. Um and this is where he would you know kind of push back on somebody like that and say okay i'm glad you believe in love i yeah, i think you're right there i think love does exist but you know what your presuppositions really don't allow for love and so he would what i mean by taking the roof or what Schaefer meant by taking the roof off is that people who you know still held on to love still held on to morality even though they rejected um, theism and Christianity, he would um, he would describe them as kind of having a roof that was they thought was protecting them. Well, he would take this roof off and and to expose them, so to speak, expose them to the logical conclusions of their presuppositions, 
and he would just you know lovingly show them that hey if if we're just accidents of nature if we're just accidents of this universe your belief in love isn't really legitimate it's it's irrational it's inconsistent and he would drive people to depression I, he would get people to realize that yeah you're right. I'm not a Christian. I don't believe God. I don't believe Christianity. And so, yeah, my belief in love is is really irrational. It's 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 inconsistent. I shouldn't believe that love exists. And so one of Schaefer's fears, you know, in this method was that he would somebody would end up in suicide because he was showing them the the hell of their position that ultimately life was meaningless. Schaefer loved Woody Allen movies. He loved Woody oh, yeah. Allen movies because he, he said Woody Allen is one of the most consistent atheists there are. Every single Woody wow. Allen movie has this as the moral of the story. Life is meaningless. Eat, drink, and be merry. There's no meaning to it. Just enjoy yourself. Every Woody Allen movie says that. And so, you know, Schaefer is trying to point people to, look, if you're consistent with your non-Christian presuppositions, you have to conclude that life is meaningless. And it did drive people, you know, down a very dark path. But that's when Schaefer could say, but you know what? Don't give up. Don't stop. He wasn't trying to talk people out of believing in love. He was trying to talk people, trying to help people to realize that it's their it's their presuppositions that were wrong, not their belief in love. Right but they're non-Christian presuppositions. And he would say, you know, don't give up your belief in love, but look, these presuppositions make much more sense out of love and morality than your non-Christian, non-Christian presuppositions. And so he, and so you can see why he's called a presupposition. Well, looks like our friend has dropped off again. Not sure what the problem is, but uh, this will probably actually be a good time to go to a commercial break anyway. Let me give the number out again, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907, we'll have Adam back on with us. We will uh, let me bring him on real quick. Hey, Adam, lost you again, man. Sorry. Yeah, I think it cuts me <laughs> gonna... off when I start rambling too much. Ah, that's Okay. What we'll do is we'll go ahead and take a break right now anyway. We're up about the, uh, our 7.30 break. So we'll go ahead and take a break for about two or three minutes, uh, give you guys a chance to get a drink or whatever you need to do. Uh, again, the, also open up the phone line, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. Give you guys uh, a chance to call in and uh, ask your question about Francis Schaefer or presuppositional apologetics, uh, et cetera. And uh, we will be back in a moment. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. It's no secret that philosophy has been given a bad rap by some in Christian circles. Why do you think that's the case? Well, bad philosophy needs a bad rap. Uh, And a lot of Christians, that's all they know. Colossians 2.8 says, beware of philosophy. Actually, there's a definite article of the in Greek. It's talking about a particular bad philosophy. It was kind of incipient Gnosticism that existed there. Christians have nothing to fear from a good philosophy. In fact, we need good philosophy to answer the bad philosophy, as C.S. Lewis said. So I think Christians 
need to get into philosophy because God commanded it, because uh, the world uh, demands it, and because the results confirm it. Uh, I can tell you any number of people who have been trained in philosophy and apologetics who have had great ministries and winning people to Christ who would not otherwise have been won to Christ. I have a whole file full of people who said I was an agnostic, I was an atheist, I read your book, uh, I appreciated the reasoning that was in it, and I've come to know Christ, and I want to thank you for uh, writing that book. So the uh, proof of the pudding is in the uh, eating. They, it has good results, uh, good philosophy has good results. You can't know error without studying truth. But you can't answer error without studying philosophy because you wouldn't go to a doctor who didn't study sickness. If you went to a doctor who said, what's wrong with that? He said, I got a pain in my apostat near my zorch or wherever you get pains. And he said, uh, what would you like to know about health? He said, look, doctor, I'm, I'm dying. I got a pain. I don't want to know about health. I want to know, can you cure this sickness I've got? So you can know the truth, but if you don't know error, you don't know how to apply the truth to the error and when the people were in error. This is John MacArthur with another edition of Portraits of Grace. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purifying a heart is the work of the Holy Spirit, but there are some things you must do in response to His prompting. First, realize you can't purify your own heart. Next, put your faith in Jesus Christ, whose sacrifice on the cross is the basis for your cleansing. Finally, study the Bible and pray. As you do so, the Spirit will continue to purify your life. There's no greater joy than knowing you're pure before God and that your life honors Him. May that joy be yours today, and may God use you powerfully for His glory. This is John MacArthur, looking forward to bringing you more Portraits of Grace. job kind of walking us through some of how Schaefer would have answered some of the objections today. Uh, and that's, that's kind of what, one of the things I was thinking, Adam, uh, and I'll let you get back to what you were saying. Um, so, you know, you have this rise of new atheism, 
uh, which, you know, wasn't as probably as aggressive and as such when uh, when Schaefer was uh, was with us. How do you think he would respond to your people like your four horsemen, like your your uh, your Dawkins and your Hitchens, etc.? Um, how would he engage them? Yeah, it's interesting, you know. Um, like I said, he wasn't one that shied away from using the traditional arguments for God. I mean, I've I've done a lot of research in the Francis Schaeffer collection, and I've seen you know letters that he wrote where he you know he talked about and used the traditional arguments for God. So I think he'd be um, I think he'd be quite open to that. I think I think one of the things that would be on his radar nowadays are all the people that are. Um, you know, trying to pop up in the middle again because it's well. And here's what I mean by that: is you know, we usually associate um, atheism or atheists as physical reductionists. So, uh, yeah, everything is material. Um, everything is if everything is physical, then you know, love, morality, all that stuff doesn't exist. But you know, there's that there's there's more and more um I guess you can call them secularists, atheists, who are trying to um come back from that or push back against that. There's as I'm seeing now, um a lot of atheists who are trying to even make a case for objective morality. They're yeah. um you know, so they're they're trying to I guess you could say they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. So they you know, they want just nature to exist. They want to be naturalists. They don't want anything supernatural. Um, but yet they want... Um, they, they recognize, I guess you could say, they recognize that there's something more to life, more to reality, than just uh, physical reductionism. And so there's right. all this talk and movement out there about uh, supervenience and emergence um, you know, emergence has kind of come come back from the old British emergence, and you know, emergence is kind of a a, a buzzword and a, and, a, and a big thing in in secular philosophy these days. Where you know they're recognizing that we're not just machines, and they're they're trying to explain what morality is and what human life is. It's more than just an accident. Um, but yet, they, you know, they don't want to go to uh, to they don't want to embrace theism. They don't want to uh, embrace anything what you could say beyond nature that is supernatural. And so I think, you know, Schaefer would would, you know, really hone in on those type of individuals and just try to, you know, again push them to one side of the continuum, just, just force them to be consistent um with their presuppositions. I think that's I think that's one of the major ministries he would have today if he was still with us. Yeah, one of the things you brought up and I think it's um I think it's good. So you you went to SES, I you know go to SES, and so we're kind of uh, at least I hold to the kind of the classical view of apologetics, and I think a lot of yeah. times we don't um, we don't push the other worldviews uh, enough and make them give make them give account kind of for their worldview. So I, I like that in that um, you know the problem of evil, or the laws of logic, or scientific method, etc. Um, you know those are issues that atheists have to deal with too. You know, a, uh, evil is not just a problem for theists, right? It's, everyone has to give an account. So I, I I like how you how you know you bring that up. That is something that 
Uh, we can't just kind of have this presumption of atheism, so to speak. Well, and another thing too is, is, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the true atheism. I mean, is is a pretty slim percentage of the population. I mean, um, somebody who would, you know, I want to use the word consistent because that's not what I mean here, but you know, a, a full-fledged atheist. Let's just say, you know, who identifies as an atheist, who lives as an atheist, all that stuff. I mean, there's there's a lot of secular people, but they might call themselves Christians, maybe liberal Christians, or they just think, you know, being being Christian is being American, so I'm going to identify as a Christian. But, you know, the, um, there's just a thing about us, and again, Schaefer would call it the mannishness of man. There's just a thing about us where we want to hold on to um, spirituality. So, you know, the vast majority of people, if they reject theism, they reject Christianity, they're not going to go um, jump right into full-fledged atheism. I mean, what I find a lot in working with people is that the, the well, you talked about the four horsemen, you know, the hardcore atheists, they, they're, they're, a, they're doing a good job getting people out of Christianity, so to speak, but people don't stay with it. I find time and time again that people don't stay in that hardcore, full-fledged um, atheism. They end up seeing people like Richard Dawkins just as authoritative and uh, crushing and dogmatic as the Christians that they you know, got upset with and left Christianity for. Um, so they end up finding, you know, this middle ground, this, um, I guess you can call it postmodern if you want. This That name bothers me because you can define it in a million different ways. But just some sort of a, you know, whatever works for you, works for me um, type of thing. Christianity doesn't work for me, but, you know, I'm going to dabble in this uh, pantheism. I'm going to dabble in some Eastern stuff, try to find meaning and spirituality there. So... You know, the classic thing for young people to say is, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And so I think what, what, would, what, what would concern Schaefer more even than the hardcore atheists are all the people who are embracing some sort of a, a pantheism. You know, when, what I'm finding, I'm finding so many people, and, and Hollywood people uh, do it. I'm just finding The Rock. Dwayne Johnson was the last person that I've seen do this recently where they, they talk about how the universe, and they capitalize universe with a capital U, how the universe has given them something, and they personalize it. And it's it's this whole, it's you know, it's rejection of theism, but it's not hardcore atheism. It's this kind of pantheistic Eastern way of thinking. And right. Schaefer saw this coming. Schaefer, Schaefer understood that this was coming. Again, he was in Europe. Uh, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. So he saw things that were coming to America. Everything hits Europe first, you know. Um, but he saw this coming. He did a lot of research in uh, India and Hinduism, Buddhism. He's got a whole... You can go out to the Labrie website and listen to Schaefer, old Schaefer Labrie tapes till you're, you know, for as long, hundreds and hundreds of hours for free out there on the Libri wow. website today. You can go out there and listen to his old tapes. And he's got a whole series on the history of India. And at first I saw that and I'm like, well, I don't really care about the history of India. I want to study apologetics. I want to study theology. Something, you know, give me something. But I started listening to it and it was fascinating because so much of what 
Western culture has slipped into with this relativism and whatever you want to call it, postmodernism, has is 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 stuff that we're borrowing from the Eastern culture. And Schaefer is is was pretty convinced that what we're going through now with this relativism is um exactly what India went through uh, I want to say 1500 years BC with um just an amalgam- amalgamation of different beliefs and just kind of got all mixed up in a big melting pot and what got birthed out of that was this eastern way of thinking this this relativism this pantheistic way of thinking and so you know, he saw a lot of this coming. And, of course, he was in the 60s, so he was seeing, you know, the Beatles at the time rushing off after they couldn't find any meaning in their drug trips. You know, they ran off to India to try to find meaning in some sort of a, you know, existential religious trip. You know, so it's folks like that who, like the Beatles, they didn't run into hardcore atheism. They ran away from Christianity, but they embraced this sort of pantheistic Eastern spirituality. And I would say that's probably a, a bigger threat or a bigger uh, predominant um, way of thinking for, for most people in America than than this hardcore atheism. Right. Well, let me ask you then, how do we, you know, because we're talking about how, um, <clears throat> sorry, dealing with uh, with atheists, you just kind of show that their their views just are kind of, absurd if if they're pushed to their logical conclusion as far as love, etc. So how how would Schaefer engage, for example, with a Muslim that, you know, believes God exists and and kind of is able to ground that in love and logic, etc., some of the transcendental stuff in, um, you know, monotheism, how would he engage with the Muslim? Yeah, again, I, I think he would use the, a similar strategy, you know, a strategy that I, that I threw out to you earlier was, you know, dealing with maybe a, a hardcore atheist or somebody on that continuum. But I think he, he would use, I, I saw him, you know, as I studied him, use the same strategy with with um, folks from other, uh, you could say, belief systems or worldviews. So, like, um, you could take a Muslim and just say, um you know, without without a trinity, without three persons, um, you mean you pretty much lose everything. You lose the whole game. If you didn't have if you didn't have three persons um, who existed eternally as God, then you you wouldn't have love. You wouldn't have relationships being the foundation of reality. Um, it, the the trinity is so important to us as Christians because it. Um, explains some of the huge uh, problems we run into when we try to think about reality. When you go back to the Greeks, the one and the many, I mean, that was one of the biggest philosophical problems they wrestled with. How can how can there be um, the one and the many both exist at the same time? Well, the Trinity is, a is you know, the, the early Christians, the early church fathers realized they didn't invent the Trinity to answer that question, they recognized that the answer they had in the New Testament, the Trinity, answered the question that the Greeks had been asking and struggling with for all those centuries. And so the Trinity is is huge. And so I, I guess what I'm saying is Schaefer would push back against a Muslim who wouldn't have the Trinity with those type of things, that you, know, you don't have uh, love, you don't have relationship that has existed for all eternity. 
And he was very against, even though he was Presbyterian, he was very against um, any sort of determinism. So, you know, that was one big thing he'd push, he would push back on Muslims with, too, is that, you know, you really, in your belief system, humans don't have much significance. There's no choice. Um, it's just Allah, and you submit to his uh, sovereign control, and, and, and that's what uh, Islam is. It's just a submission to uh, what Allah, whatever Allah decides. And so human, human significance, human choice, human free will, so to speak, disappears. And he would just you know, point out to them that that's, that's not how you live. If, if, you, if you, don't, you don't really live that way, um, that's not right. consistent with how you live. We live. We, you know, we just have this intuition that we are making choices, that we have free will, that humans um, humans have significance in their interactions with others, and so. And he'd use the same strategy then with somebody from the, an Eastern culture, who is, you know, pantheistic. Everything is God. All is one. He would say things to them. You know, if if you're really consistent in that then again, he, he, um, human beings lose their significance. Personality loses their significance. Uh, personality doesn't exist. It's just an illusion. We're all one. And so you, you lose um, individuality um, because you're, you, in Eastern thinking, there's so much emphasis on the one. We're all one. And in fact, reality is just an, an illusion. And so there's... You know, we don't live like that. Schaefer just says nobody lives like that. Um, we respect individuals. We we know there's there's personality and personal significance. You know, we we believe that um, we we live as though reality does really matter. And so it's just not pantheism, Eastern thinking is just not consistent with what we find in the real world, which again is that there's a real universe. There's something there rather than nothing. It has form and the mannishness of man, that we have human significance, we have human choice, we have morality, we have love, we have real relationships between personalities. And he, he's convinced, and I think he's right, that Christianity provides the best explanation for those things, i.e. the real world. Did Schaefer himself hold to uh, Reformed theology or kind of a hybrid or something of it? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, he he has a, um, I mean, I'll let him speak for himself. He's got, oh, I think it's a 60-lecture series um, on the Libri. I mean, you can go download it for free right now from the Libri website. But he, it's just Schaefer giving um, two-hour lectures every Wednesday night. And uh, he did it uh, six for whatever, six, 50, 60 weeks in a row. And it's just systematic theology, and what he uses is the Westminster Confession. Wow. And so he goes through the entire Westminster Confession, and I don't know how many hours that is, but he just walks through the whole <laughs> thing and uh, lays out his theology. So yeah, I would say he was he was Presbyterian, he was Reformed. Um, interesting enough, he was um, pre-mill, pre-trib. Wow. Um, yeah, so he wasn't a full-fledged dispensationalist, so he didn't... He didn't buy into everything that was, you know, taught, say, at like Dallas Theological Seminary. He wouldn't call himself a dispensationalist, but he was pre-mill, he was pre-trib. So that was kind of an interesting stance for him to take as a Presbyterian. And he would 
he would have some major problems with hardcore determinism. And, you know, I don't want to paint Calvinists with too broad of a brush, but there, you know, there are sometimes, I should say, some um, Calvinists who place maybe too strong of an emphasis um, on determinism, and Schaefer really responded to that. So, I mean, even as a Presbyterian, even somebody as Reformed, he would push back against that and have some real issues with that. He, he, you know, he he wanted to, and, and I should say on the other side, you know, really strong Reformed people uh, criticized Schaefer for this because Schaefer would emphasize free will. Schaefer would emphasize significant human choices. Schaefer would, you know, emphasize those things. And so a lot of um, hardcore um, Reformed people would, would criticize Schaefer that he, you know, his even his apologetic method wasn't really Reformed because it wasn't Vantillian enough. And, it, you know, his doctrine of election and predestination wasn't, you know, reformed enough. So, you know, people, there were reformed people that really criticized him about that. It's interesting. His son-in-law, uh, Udo Middleman, uh, who married his daughter Deborah, they started their own ministry. Well, them, those two, and Edith. So, let's okay. So Francis passed away in 1984, and so his wife Edith lived for oh, almost another 30 years after that. And wow. um, she just passed away a few years ago, yeah. But so his wife Edith, and then their daughter Deborah, and her husband Udo, which would be Udo and Deborah Middleman, um, they started their own ministry. They didn't. They didn't um, uh, continue with Labrie. They started a, a different ministry called the Francis Schaeffer Foundation, and it's very similar to Labrie. Um, it's based in Switzerland and also in New York. But uh, I just um, met Udo and Deborah uh, recently. They spoke at my seminary, and yeah, he spoke, and <laughs> I, re, re, there was a lot of Reformed people um, there who were not happy with what he had to say about uh, God's will and how God works in history. So, and and but what I, I could tell what Udo was saying was exactly the type of stuff that that Schaefer said. So it's. It's one of those things where yes, he was reformed, but a lot of reformed people didn't like him because he wasn't. He emphasized free will a lot. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Well, tell you what, take uh, take five minutes and kind of wrap us out, tie the tie the threads together. Um, how would you kind of in, in you know four or five minutes kind of give a summary of of the life and thought of Francis Schaeffer, and maybe why do Christians need today? How can we how can we benefit from studying uh, his works? I think that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, I think there's really, you know, I'm a Baptist, obviously. So I'm I'm Southern Baptist pastor, and I've been so by the four, you know, the four different Baptist seminaries there. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's strange, you, you know, when you. when his family you know, um, asked our, our seminary, you know, we were a little bit surprised that, you know, <laughs> we asked him, you, you realize we're not a Presbyterian seminary, right? Because <laughs> he is. I mean, he was Presbyterian his whole life and uh, loved uh, the Presbyterian, conservative Presbyterian denomination he was a part of. and and um, But for whatever reason, you know, the, the, the family asked our seminary. And there's just, you know, a lot of... Um, Baptists that are being exposed to Francis Schaeffer and I think benefiting from 
from his um, life. And, you know, one thing that a lot of people don't know is that his wife, Edith, actually wrote more than he did um, and published just as many, if not as more, um, if not more books than he did. And what and, and and he always said you need to read both because he concentrated in his writing on the apologetics, the intellectual history of Western culture, uh, philosophy. But Edith really, and her books are be like um, there's one one of her books called uh, just Labrie, as uh, the story of Labrie. Um, one of her books is called the the, the tapestry which is kind of the story of their life. But I think one of the reasons, and it might even be the main reason, um, why Francis Schaeffer was so, I don't want to use the word successful, but so influential, so helpful to so many people. And it, 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 might, not even, it might not even be because he had you know all the answers correct. You know, there's people that debate all the time about, you know, whether he got a Thomas Aquinas right or wrong, whether he understood Kierkegaard correctly. So, I mean, you can nitpick him and, you know, on the details, whether he really understood some of these um, philosophers correctly or not. But, you know, what he was so good at was seeing the big picture. I mean, he, he could he could understand the big picture. He could see where things were going. He could understand uh, the big picture. And then even more so than that is this idea of spirituality, what what real and this is what really comes across in Edith's books, just in that they're dependent on the Holy Spirit. It was about loving people. I mean, again, this was the fifties and sixties, so communes were kind of the thing. But the Labrie became not just an intellectual center, but a, a center for love and community and person to person uh communication. And and not, so people flocked to Labrie, not just to get their intellectual questions answered, which they did, but because they found true Christianity lived out the way it should be. It wasn't perfect. I mean, Schaefer was the first to admit, you know, he had a temper, he struggled with various things like we all do. But at Labrie, they, they created something beautiful there. And it wasn't just, you know, hardcore intellectual thinking. It was love, and it was interacting with people. So if anybody I've ever seen um, and, and studied, I mean, he just had the best combination of, of, you know, honest answers to honest questions combined with loving people, just caring for them, having a heart for them, getting to know them, spending time with them, relationships. I mean... People would just live there at Labrie. Homeless people, um, hippies would just come. People on drugs, and they just they would find love that they that they weren't finding anywhere else in the world. So I think that's well, I think that's yeah. one thing we can really take away from from Schaefer is just to, to have that combination of of relationship and um, powerful intellectual thinking. Yeah, that's one of the hard things that uh, sometimes uh, hard to find today in people that yeah. have both the love for the mind, but also uh, equally a love for the people. And it's not one or the other. Sometimes it's pitted that way. So that's good. That is uh, that is really good. Uh, do you have the website or anything where? 
people can can contact you? Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Um, you know, our church is, is TGK Baptist, um, so it's tgkbaptist.org. Um, you can go to our church's website and get my contact information there, and I'd love to be of help to anybody um, in any way I can. And it's uh, the Francis Schaeffer Collection. If you want to do a just do a Google search for the Francis Schaeffer Collection. That will take you to um, information about the collection at my seminary. It's not available to the public. You have to get approval. It's uh, pretty pretty guarded. I mean, it's it's held in custodianship, so you have to get approval to research it. But um, if you're doing some research, you can ask permission um, of the uh, of the custodian to who is Dr. Little um, to to look at that, and then. I would I'd point you to uh, the Libri website. Again, just probably do a Google search for Libri. I don't know the exact website. But you can go on to the Libri website, and they have you know dozens and dozens, probably hundreds of of tapes of Francis Schaeffer. You can listen to his lectures and such. Great. It's been a definitely informative show, and uh, definitely look forward to diving into some of those lectures and... Uh, Maybe getting a book or two on 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 Schaefer and kind of reading reading more about him. So appreciate awesome. you coming well, thank, on, brother. Yeah, thanks for so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about you know what I'm researching and what I'm learning about and and all the things. So just uh, thank you and thank you for you guys' ministry. I appreciate it. Well, absolutely. Yep, uh, love to have you back on the show in the future. So we'll. We'll be in contact and uh, maybe set be able to set something up for the future. That'd be awesome. So, all righty, I appreciate you, my friend. God bless. All right. Yep, we'll talk to you later. All right, friends. I uh, appreciate you guys tuning in today as we looked at the life and the thought of Francis Schaeffer. Just a quick reminder again: the Truth Pro or uh, Truth uh, Festival. Why I keep calling it the Truth Project. Truth Festival uh, is going to be this Saturday in uh, Belmont. And so we'd love to see you. Come on out, support us, and uh, look forward to seeing you guys all next week. I'm going to kind of close it out playing that spot for the uh, Truth Festival and give you guys kind of the information for, uh, for this coming Saturday. So God bless. I'm Greg Walker with Global Cross Ministries, and I'm the current student government president of Southern Evangelical Seminary. We're united with the seminary and also with Ratio Christi to host a massive free festival grassroots event. It's called the Truth Festival. This is basically a chance for Christians from across different denominations, seminaries, missions organizations to get together and celebrate truth, life, and love, to celebrate our life in Jesus Christ. Um, this festival is going to include fun activities for all ages. We'll have children's art activities. We'll have clown ministries. We'll have blow-up castles. We'll have a big blow-up screen for God's Not Dead in the evening. And We're bringing in different missions organizations from all over the world to speak about what Jesus, what God is doing today, right now. They're going to be speaking about all this amazing work. And we're, going to have, we're also going to have representatives come in and talk about modern-day persecution. Now, along with the speakers, we're going to have placed tents all over the park. And these tents are going to be topical. And so if someone has a typical question or objection that's 
directed towards the Christian faith, we will have trained seminary students at those tents ready to gently and respectfully answer questions and objections. And so Stowe Park, Belmont, North Carolina, May 30th, 2015. Be there. It's from 11 in the morning until 1030 at night. It is going to be exciting. You can visit us on truthfestival.org.